Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode is brought to you by Lynda.com. Lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to help individuals and organizations learn. You can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts on software, web development, graphic design, and more. These aren't YouTube videos. These aren't explanations from the internet that tell you how to do things based off some person's opinion. They're curated. They're well-made. They have transcripts and they're fantastic. Check it out. Lynda.com. And for a limited time, listeners of this podcast can go to lynda.com slash smart. That's lynda.com slash smart and try out this service for seven days for free. Gorge on a smorgasbord of knowledge, a buffet of things that will make your brain big and fat. Go check it out. You have nothing to lose. It's really cool. Just play around with it just because lynda.com slash smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 36. Sounds and everything. Okay. Do you think that you're capable of winning this contest? Yeah. And how good from one to ten would you rate yourself? Ten. Ten? Whatever song you want me to sing, I'll do it. Gwen Stefani, I can sing. Prince, I can sing. Sheila E. Kylie, Dad, I probably could do Danny as well. I can sing. Better than Madonna. You're better. Yeah, I think. Go on then. This is the insanely popular show X Factor, one of several television shows in this genre of television like American Idol and America's Got Talent and their their versions of this in many different countries around the world. The winning formula for the show is a group of very mean judges berate and ridicule someone who is deluded and thinks they're a little more talented than they actually are for the enjoyment of millions of people at home who then get to point and laugh at that person. And scratch their heads as to uh, why didn't this person know that they couldn't sing in the first place before they went on national television. I was good, wasn't it? Let's face it. No. No. So yeah, these shows, they are... Well, I don't like... um, well, let's just say they're not for me. I, yes, I know that every once in a while someone does an amazing performance and that's supposed to be the focus of the show, but it seems to me that this is the other part of it that people really like. And I don't like watching the judges laughing and making fun of the singers and generally having a, a great time at their expense. And I just don't like this version of brutal honesty. But that's, that's just me. I could totally be wrong. I mean, this is just my weird thing that I 
feel when I see these shows. So, you know, if people love them for different reasons, that's, that's their thing. It's just not my thing. So the thing I'm trying to get at here though, is that this other element of the show, these people who go on and seem to think they have a chance and don't what's going on there. Haven't they watched the show before? Aren't they aware of the, the process? Don't they know what they might be getting into? If, if these people truly are unaware that they are unskilled at a certain level, why is it so difficult for them to see that? And of course, when you think this, you start to think, wait, am I unable to see where I am lacking in skills? It reminds me of this aunt that I have who, uh, she had a lazy eye, not very bad, but noticeable. And she didn't know about it. She didn't realize it until her late thirties because none of her friends or family ever told her. Is to record an album. What are you going to sing? I'm going to sing Vision of Love from Mariah right. Carey. Excellent. Are you? Yeah. This is your two minutes. Make the most of it. Sweet Sweetest now, these shows have had their share of controversy, whether it's the clever editing to make things seem better or worse, it's auto-tuning, stage situations, and so on. I mean, we could probably assume that uh, even if none of that is true, that what you are actually seeing probably isn't what exactly happened there in the in the uh, performance or in the, uh, the concert hall for real. But aside from that, it is still true that thousands and thousands of people are right now getting ready to audition for one of these programs, and many of them aren't really talented at the level that has a true chance of making it on the show and out into the world where they will get a record deal and tour the country and all of that, which is not to say that they're awful or that they're they're the worst singers in the world or whatever. It's just that, you know, there is this certain bar you have to get above to wow enough people to be able to create an audience and to be able to have a following and to impress really mean, terrible people who are really ready to laugh at you in front of millions of other people. I think believe right now before I fall any deeper. Think believe right now. And on that note, <laughs> I think you should leave right now. Ugh, that hurts my heart. Uh, I, I just can't. I can't watch these shows. But this is a great illustration of something in the realm of psychology the psychology of decision making and self delusion and judgment and reasoning. It might surprise you to learn that there is an actual psychological term for what is happening here. There's an actual uh, phenomenon that has been studied and quantified that explains why it's so difficult for people who are um, not talented at a certain level to be able to recognize that they are not talented at that level. In other words, this is something that we all experience. We can be unskilled and be unaware of that lack of skill. And in fact, feel the the opposite thing. Feel uh, unrealistically optimistic about our level of skill. And that can get us into um, a lot of trouble. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And that's what we're going to explore today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore another topic in the realm of self-delusion, the psychology of reasoning itself. And then we seek out an expert to help us understand that topic 
And on this episode is a topic that has been fundamental to You Are Not So Smart for a long time, and that is the Dunning-Kruger effect, or as uh, sometimes it's referred to, being unskilled and unaware at the same time. And we're going to talk to Professor Dr. David Dunning, the the man who was part of the team who actually discovered this thing, who first quantified it, who has continued to research it for many years and add more and more information to the psychological literature on this phenomenon, this trait of human beings. And it's important to remember that this is a um, very fundamental thing to human beings in general. Every single person does this. Some cultures magnify the effect more than others and some suppress it more than others. But in general, we all sort of have a hard time knowing exactly how good we are at things, how skilled we are at certain things. And uh, man, I'm a great example of that. My whole life has been um, a series of situations where I jumped right in thinking I could do whatever anybody else can do and then slowly trying to uh, dig my way out of that hole. In fact, uh, when I look back at the first couple of episodes of this podcast, whoa, they are they are really rough. And I learned how to do this on the way. And I'm sure that I'm going to look back. I hope that I'm going to look back in um in years to come at this episode and in, in episodes around this episode where I'll be like, Oh wow, what was I thinking? I can do better than that now. And hopefully we always can do that. We can always look back at, um, who we used to be and see that we really needed, uh, some advice from the person we are now about how not to do that thing that we are doing then. So this, this effect, this Dunning Kruger effect, let me read a couple things to you. Um, I've, previously written about this that will help make it make sense. Um, first of all, imagine you're very good at a particular game, like let's say it's chess or street fighter or poker. And uh, it really doesn't matter. Whatever game it is that you play that, uh, you play with all your friends all the time and you seem to win a lot of the time as well. You get so good at it that you start to think you could win perhaps in a tournament. And then you get online and you find where the next regional tournament is. And when you pay the entrance fee and go play, um, you lose, you, you lose the first round. And it turns out that you are not very good at that game after all. And all this time you thought that you were among the best of the best. It's just that you actually were an amateur and that's the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a basic element of human nature. Whenever you see people on YouTube and on television shows who are, you know, poorly twirling weapons, singing off key, the performances are terrible. They're not, and they're not self-aware. They're not ironic you wonder to yourself, why would somebody put themselves on a world stage in such an embarrassing way? The thing is, a lot of the time, those people don't imagine that the worldwide audience as being more sophisticated than the small audience of friends, family, and peers they usually stand before. See, there's a thing about experts. Like, have you ever noticed that people with advanced degrees in climate science or biology, they don't get online and debate global warming or evolution the way people who have no idea what that stuff is really like, people who are non-experts, they don't argue in the way that those people do. It seems like the less you know about a subject, then the less you believe there is to know in total. And once you have some experience, that's when you start to recognize the breadth and depth you have yet to plunder. There are lots of quotes about this. This is something that people notice throughout history. Bertrand Russell once said that in the modern world, the stupid are cocksure while the intelligent are full of doubt. And Charles Darwin once said, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Now, this is something that the Dunning-Kruger effect was popular. Uh, it's always popular for people to bring up during um, times of political debate. You want to make your the opponent seem like a moron. You say that they're in the throes of the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's one of those things where the true nature of it is, is um, it's like this. 
As someone moves from novice to amateur to expert to master, the lines between each stage are difficult to recognize. And the farther ahead you get, the longer it takes to progress. Yet the time it takes to go from novice to amateur, it feels very rapid. And that's where the Dunning-Kruger effect strikes. You don't, you don't realize that what you think the same amount of practice will move you from amateur to expert as it took to go from novice to amateur, but it will not. So that's the end of the uh, previously written material that I had out there about the Dunning-Kruger effect. And there's, there's a little bit more out there if you want to read it. But um, here's the thing. If you've ever played like a role-playing game or something like that where you level up, you know, you reach level one, then two, then three after you've received a certain amount of experience, it's it's a lot like that. I mean, actual life is a lot like that where it's you go from knowing nothing to knowing something to being kind of, under, you know, kind of getting an, an understanding of, of what you're doing. Uh, you know, if you're playing guitar or whatever, you will go from having no idea how a guitar works to being able to play a couple chords and then being able to play a simple song. Maybe you can do... Uh, you know, satisfaction. You're like, Oh my God, I'm playing it. Bom, 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 bom. And you're like, Oh wow. Guitar is easy. And you think that maybe, uh, in just a few more weeks, you'll be playing, uh, you know, classical guitar, <laughs> but the, the progress from level, let's say, let's say when you play satisfaction, you're a level four <laughs> to play, uh, you know, full on flamenco guitar with uh, all the crazy flourishes and, and beautiful uh, tapping and everything else that goes on and the hammer ons and all that, you have to be level 206. And, uh, it takes a long time to just go from level 50 to 51, much less getting from 50 to 206. And that's, that's sort of what it's like when you are, uh, being completely misled by the amount of um, improvement that you've seen in your own performance. That's one element of the Dunning-Kruger effect. The other element is um, something that we're going to talk about in the interview that <laughs> Dunning, Dr. Dunning coined called um, in the interview called uh, mediocrity enablers. And uh, we'll get into that in just a second. Now, since I've experienced this a lot, I wanted to see if uh, you've experienced it. So I asked on the You Are Not So Smart Facebook page, what are some um, examples from your own lives where you realized you weren't really ready for what you were doing? I actually, the actual question at the Facebook page was, have you ever been confronted with the fact that you were in over your head or that you had no idea what you were doing or that you thought you were more skilled at something than you actually were? And uh, I said that I would share some of these on the show. I got a lot of responses here and they are all great. Oh my God. Um, this one says that, uh, I was hired at, uh, this is Daniel Wynn. he says, when I was hired at DSW on day one, I was giving shoe advice to middle-aged women. I had no idea what was fashionable. So I pretty much made it up. They seemed to trust my advice. So it worked out. <laughs> this one comes from Mary Jo Stewart. And she says, she writes, Parenting and coming up with an original art project. Both of these can be classified as have no clue, but need to jump in and keep going. <laughs> I've heard this a lot, Mary Jo, from parents who uh, generally have no idea what they're doing and just make it up as they go along and hope for the best. Um, and I realized as I grew up and I grew older that um, parents, you know, you, all the adults in the world who you think are running things and know what they're doing, not really. They're just sort of a uh, stumbling around the dark and flailing their hands around and hoping for the best. And it's a, it's a real wake up call when you realize that uh, we're all making this up as we go along. This next one comes from, and I'm, ap I'm apologizing ahead of time here. I may get this wrong, but his name is keys to Ewan. 
And he writes that when I was an intern giving local legal advice to people in need, I once told an illegal immigrant I would check out his case regarding a request for a passport from Uganda. Little did I know, I took a nosedive deep into the world of international bureaucracy. And when I was in so deep, I emailed ambassadors of Uganda on a bi-daily basis asking for things I knew so little about it would shock every other well-trained lawyer in international law. It was a humbling and shocking experience, man. I I really think that that's a great story. Thank you so much. I really I bet that people in every profession experience this. Lawyers, doctors, politicians, CEOs, um, it, it, people with great power, military, all that kind of stuff. People who are in, have a great amount of power at their fingertips, I bet are always uh, finding that they have no idea what they're up to and working their way out of that hole. I'm so glad that your situation finally worked out, though. Uh, this is Ann Garrido, uh, and she writes that my previous job as a manager, I didn't know anything about the company or the tasks involved, and I didn't even speak English. <laughs> wow. Alex Rees, he writes, my first year teaching, a new classroom with no materials, and it was a special day class, meaning I could not rely on the general educators for advice. Uh, you know, there's another example. Teachers, man, you look, you think they have it all figured out, but you know, many times you just have to make it up on the spot. And uh, I am really impressed at the, at, at the progress that a lot of people make when they're in that situation. Again, I apologize if I get your name incorrect, but uh, Muhammad Akramuddin, he says, I was confident about driving a car at 13, uh, but then he, uh, he started using the brakes and realized he uh, actually was scared when he accelerated because he was uh, pressing the wrong pedals. He also says when he first started working out, he thought that he could jog for miles easily right off the bat. Little did he know that uh, within the first 10 minutes, he was so tired and sweaty, he couldn't go on. Go on. Man, I've been there before too. Uh, <laughs> there's no way I'm this week. Yes, yes, apparently I am. Matt White, he writes... I had just left university and I got on a plane on a recruitment day at a large IT company through someone that I knew. When I got there, all of the other applicants were older and more experienced than me, many in senior positions. And I found it really hard to contribute anything to the group uh, during the assessment sessions. And he had uh, no experience to draw upon. And it was quite stressful and he felt very self-conscious. And he, he felt like he was at school and he didn't know the answer whenever the teacher singled him out. That's, I bet, I mean, I, I can think of so many experiences when I first, uh, um, after the, after the interview, after everything was over and I was, um, feeling pretty good about myself. And then I sit down on the first day of work and I'm like, ah, doesn't, what do you do? <laughs> I think a lot of people think that maybe even, uh, years into their job. Here's a great example. This is exactly the Dunning-Kruger effect. This is Robert Provincio. He says that I grew up playing chess and I always played it with my brothers, uncles, and cousins. Even in middle school, I was on a chess team, always considered myself a good chess player, better than average. And when I was 30 years old, I met up with a social chess club at a local coffee house who met, they met weekly and they were, uh, he was excited to find players that were on the same level as him. And after his first game, he realized that he had mistaken his ability by the end of the night. He says, I felt like a three-year-old trying to play basketball against an adult. I was a little embarrassed, to say the least. That is exactly what I'm talking about here. That is the Dunning-Kruger effect up and down. And uh, I uh, I bet a lot of people have felt that way, uh, especially with something like chess, where it's so easy to think. Once once you kind of have a good grip of the of how, a good grasp of how chess works, you can very much mow over people who are beginners and you start thinking I'm a master. And then you play anyone who has uh, played the game 
at a competitive level and they will almost yawn in your face and, um, you know, read a book while playing the game. Uh, and there are those chess masters out there who can play like 500 games at once and win all of them just going from table to table. Yeah. That's a level of expertise that takes a while to achieve. Tristan Wood writes that, uh, he feels this almost every day as a field service person. Every time I come across a breakdown situation that I don't have an immediate solution for, I have this feeling that I'm in over my head, even though I've been doing this for nearly 15 years, I still have doubts. And Phil Stevens writes, I enrolled in an upper division linguistic class. And on the first day, the professor handed out an inch thick stack of something in a non-existent language and told the class, formulate a grammar from this before the next hour, <laughs> the, the next, the next class hour. Uh, needless to say, I dropped that class before that next hour. I had a similar experience with uh, introduction to shorthand and um, a black studies class. And I dropped out of both of those like a hot potato. In fact, there were a lot of people who said that, you know, when they first got into college, um, they were struck with that amazing realization that, oh, wow, uh, high school did not really prepare me for this. And I thought I was a lot smarter than I really am. But really, I was just, you know, a smart person in a high school environment. Uh, maybe especially if you're from like a smaller high school. Um, Joseph Rabb says, I find that I'm, um, in this situation all the time. He's an engineer. He runs into problems every day that he's never considered before. And, um, he says that uh, often he finds himself way in over his head. Um, this is great. It comes from, uh, <laughs> this comes from Rachel Roman who just writes every single day. I'm in grad school for acoustical engineering. And the more I learn, the more I learn that I have yet still much to learn. As one of the professors says, if you're in grad school and you don't feel a little bit stupid every day, then you went to the wrong grad school. And I definitely went to the right school. There are so many more of these. I, I, I if I keep reading these, this, this will last 15 more minutes, but there, uh, go to the Facebook page. It says, you are not so smart. It's uh, facebook.com slash you are not so smart. And you can read more. There are people in there who are doctors. There are people in there who are engineers. There are people in there who are educators, parents, and they all have these moments where they're like, oh, wait, I have no idea what I'm doing. I wasn't fully prepared for this. And um, it's a very human situation. It's just something that we all experience. And I think it's good that we realize that we're all experiencing this all the time. And at its strongest, you know, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. At, at the very strongest, it's that. Um, and some, some of these say, some of these things are just shades of that, but to understand what we're talking about, when we say what is truly the Dunning Kruger effect, let's actually talk to the scientist who's responsible for coining the term. Dr. David Dunning is our guest on this episode of the, you're not so smart podcast. He is a professor of psychology at Cornell university in Ithaca, New York, and his research focuses on accuracy and illusion in human judgment. He does a lot of work in social psychology and he's interested in people's perception of both themselves and their surroundings and how those things differ from what we would objectively define as reality. In his uh, psychological work, he writes on his uh, bio at um, Cornell, he says that he really likes to concentrate on accuracy and error and eyewitness testimony. And uh, of course, this other thing about being above average, which is something that he studies a lot. And he writes in his, uh, in his biography that, uh, a full 94% of college professors state that they do above average work. Although that would be statistically impossible for everyone to be above average. And he's also interested in how people bolster their self-interest, their self-worth. And, um, he also does, uh, what's called psycho legal research. And that's the eyewitness testimony and things like that. So this is one of the, um, 
leading psychologists in the world right now. One of the uh, most expert experts we've ever had on the show. And I am very, very happy to have Professor David Dunning right here. Let's pick his brain. Okay, David, it feels like if there is anything that I know about in this world, it's my own self, like who I am, uh, what I am and what I am not capable of, how I compare to others and so on. What does your research tell us about the image that we have of ourselves and of our skills and our talents? Well, uh, what our research suggests is that, uh, of course, the Greeks uh, said that knowing thyself was one of the most important tasks that you could ever do in life. But our work suggests that this is one of the most intrinsically difficult tasks to do. Um, that is, left to your own devices without the help of other people, uh, we're just not in a position really to know ourselves. Um, we live in a world that gives us misinformation or doesn't give us crucial information. Uh, knowing thyself is an intrinsically difficult task. I mean, the world doesn't give us the information we need to really know what we're good at and what we're bad at. Um, often it gives us misleading information. And often we're guilty of misleading ourselves. So at the end of the day, if you compare uh, what people say about themselves and, and what they truly believe about themselves, to the reality of themselves, and that's what I do as a psychologist. I, can, I measure the reality of people. Uh, what you find is some relationship, but the relationship between what people think about themselves and the reality of themselves is relatively meager to often non-existent. And this is the, like one of the most difficult things to to fully accept and 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 uh, realize when it comes to uh, when you start to really explore psychology, and it, because not only is it that it seems that we're bad at assessing ourselves? We don't feel that. We feel the opposite of that. Is that something that you, you see as well in your research? Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah, we often do have a feeling that we really do know ourselves and we know what we're capable of. And um, the mistake that we make is that uh, we often think we're capable of lots of things uh, that we actually aren't capable of. That is, we're overconfident, uh, we're too certain about our abilities, uh, uh, too confident in our expertise, uh, a little too... Um, uh, having a little bit too much hubris in our moral character. and But the key here is that people really believe it. They really believe rather positive images of themselves. Though when you actually test out what people can actually do or what they really do, uh, the picture isn't that positive. Yeah, I, I remember the first time in my life that I really recognized that this was, this was true was um, – in college, I staged a um, a fighting game tournament where I uh, I had um, I set up all these uh, these video game systems and I invited people from around the country to the uh, university to play a uh, particular uh, fighting game and it, we had a sort of a group of friends like it was like eight to ten people in our hometown who uh, played this game and we thought that we were amazing at it we thought that we were the best. Uh, in the world. And I didn't, I had no problem inviting the champions from the country to come play against us. And every single one of us lost, uh, both of our matches immediately. <laughs> like we didn't even, we didn't even place, we didn't even mm -hmm. come close. We were absolutely destroyed. Um, and I remember all of us sort of shaking our heads and rubbing our, our temples and thinking like, how could we not just be, uh, not okay, but act, actually suck? <laughs> like, how is that possible? Um, and I bet that, sort of uh that happens a lot amongst um people who 
feel or like sort of at the amateur level feel that they have um, achieved something and that there's not much distance between that amateur and, and level and master level. Is, is this something that you've uh, seen in your research as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, not only have we seen it, but uh, a lot of people have seen it. That is that, um, uh, you know, if people are at the amateur level, uh, they really haven't seen the master level. So they've seen maybe hints of it and maybe they've seen that uh, occasional things where another person's a little bit better than they are. But that's all they've ever seen. Um, and so when they, and, and this often uh, explains the trauma of going to college, when they go from <laughs> high school and being the best of their swimming team to college and suddenly being in the, you know, uh, down in the bottom 20% of the people who are trying out, um, uh, they uh, begin to realize it's just what a small pond they were a fish in. That is that a, a lot of the problem we have in assessing ourselves is we don't get to see the entire range of competence out there, all the way from the worst, uh, all the way to the best. And uh, not knowing what the best looks like, we can presume uh, that we're very close to that top. Um, and the reason we think we're close to the top is we really haven't seen that top. Right. Uh, and... Uh, uh, it is the case. I, I've been a college professor for a few decades now, and there is a time in about the first half semester when students begin to realize all these other students are are good, and there are some students here that, that uh, who seem to be supernaturally good, and they've just never seen that, mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the reason why they thought they were. Uh, uh, they thought they were so skilled beforehand. Uh, they're being exposed to an entirely different world. I, I, th I think of it like, you know, uncles that I have that think that they could win Jeopardy, you know, but if, if, you, put, oh, yeah. if, you, if you actually put them in front of Alex Trebek, they wouldn't, they would go negative immediately. Um, <laughs> no, I think that's, no, I think that's right. I mean, uh, 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 one of the things we get to do when we're watching Jeopardy is we get to choose which questions we answer. We're not watching how many questions we just sort of skip. And the problem is all those questions we skip are going to make us losers when we actually go on uh, the program. And put on top of that the fact that uh, you're nervous, the cameras are on you, Alex Trebek probably is much more imposing in person than, <laughs> uh, uh, than through the TV set. Um, uh, you know, People just haven't had the experience. That's going to uh, give them a more accurate clue as to uh, where their skill actually lies. When I uh, first uh, was reading your your research and your work, I, I the, the very first example that came to my mind was um, uh, uh, reality television shows that are about um, people who are um, trying to win at some sort of a talent competition or trying mm -hmm. to win at singing. And um, I know that those shows purposefully grab a couple people who aren't very good and put them out there for ridicule. But um, you'd think at this point that those people people would know that's that's happening and they wouldn't go along with it is 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 that the dunning-kruger effect whenever um you have people who are not very good at singing who actually go all the way to the end and they think that they're going to win that competition well it's a good example of the dunning-kruger effect that is uh in, in fact uh, in the early days um the name dunning-kruger effect was uh, competing with uh, the name american idol uh, effect ah. because american idol uh, had all these examples. Of course, they're chosen for television, but we ha had all these examples of people who truthfully thought they were good uh, when, in fact, um, they were nowhere near any sense of the term good in terms of their their singing. And 
and in looking at what's going on for those individuals, it, it looks like they are unfortunately in, in the Dunning Kruger world or in the American Idol version of uh, of the Dunning Kruger world um, because. Um, uh, one of the issues that makes uh, self-evaluation very hard, knowing if you're good or you're bad, is that um, often the information you're using to produce uh, your answer, to produce your performance, let's say if you're an American Idol, is exactly the same information or evidence you're using to judge yourself. And, of course, everybody is trying to do the best that they can. So, pe- uh, so people are singing, they're singing their best, uh, they're probably hearing something that's pretty good. Uh, that is, what we hear internally is different from what other people are hearing. And um, uh, because of that, they think they're doing at least okay when uh, uh, in the old days, the Simon Cowell might be, you know, wincing in the corner and diving under the desk or, um, <laughs> or, or the judges are patiently waiting because they know that the, the camera is going to take their reaction shot at the end. And it's and the reaction shot is not going to be the one the contestant wanted to see, um, uh, but it's basically that people who are um, singing, what they're hearing is different from what the world is hearing, and what they're hearing makes them believe they're doing much better than uh, they're actually doing. That's the Dunning Kruger world. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that like that in their hometown, they may be the best singer, or in their group of friends, they're the best at what they do, and. Um, and, you know, there's all the, all this American stuff goes into it. We're like, you know, believe in your dreams. Don't listen to people until you don't have it. You know, it's a, it can be, it can really be this tough to break out of psychological cocoon that, that, um, I'm always afraid that I'm inside of one of those cocoons. Well, but yeah, that's absolutely true. But here's the other problem, um, with that, which is that other people conspire, uh, with us to keep us in those cocoons. That is, uh, one of the things I tell my students is, uh, do remember that what people say to your face is not what they're saying about you behind your back. Mm. Um, and, uh, we live in a world that's polite and we live in a world in which people, you, you know, just want to make it through the day, uh, without too much disharmony and too much rancor and too much argument. So, uh, you may not have the best um, voice in the world. There may be other people who are painfully aware, and I do mean painfully aware, that uh, you don't have the best voice in the world. They may actually be enablers in the belief that you can actually sing good enough to go on uh, an audition to the TV show. <laughs> Mediocrity enablers. I want I want you to put that into a, a research paper. Uh, that's a great term. <laughs> well, actually, it is, actually it is a great term. Uh, but the key about that is, if you go through the day, just mark how many times during the day you're being a mediocrity enabler. Uh, and th- this is just a conspiracy we, we we do for each other, and that's terrific for you know conversations. That's terrific for um, uh, everyday life, but it can lead a person uh, who actually <laughs> believes it into um, situations with uh, bigger outcomes. Yeah. Well, um, tell us a little bit about this um, the MacArthur Wheeler incident. I think that's one of the coolest stories about how uh, a psychological phenomenon finally got quantified. How, tell us how, uh, a little bit about the incident and how that led to your research. Yeah, in the early days, I, I was thinking a lot about um, the question of do incompetent people know they're incompetent? Because um, uh, if you're in a college professor's office, you often have people, and they're not necessarily students, come into your office with wild-eyed ideas. <laughs> and you just look at them and you you think in the back of your head, they must know what they're saying is doesn't make sense. Or if, if it's not in your office, you, you go to a faculty meeting and you, you hear it there. 
Um, uh, and uh, but in the early, but one of the stories that I encountered uh, early on was the story of this would-be bank robber in Pittsburgh, um, Pennsylvania, who um, robbed a couple of banks in broad daylight with no visible um, disguise, and the police caught him within hours. I mean, it was just a question of showing his uh, face from surveillance tapes um, in the evening news, and before midnight he was caught. And he was incredulous uh, because uh, as the police showed him the surveillance tapes, um, he started to mutter, uh, but I wore the juice. I wore the juice. That is, he thought that put, smearing your face with lemon juice would render it invisible or fuzzy to video cameras. Um, uh, you know, a wild theory to begin with. Yeah. Uh, but he, he really, really believed, but he really believed it to the tune of actually um, – robbing a couple of banks without any sort of precaution against being caught uh, based on this theory. Now, to his credit, he actually tested the theory. Uh, he actually did smear his face with lemon juice uh, a few days before and then took a Polaroid selfie uh, of himself. And all he saw was wall. What he didn't realize that he, is that he had misshaped the camera. Uh, so there, there is a nuance uh, to uh, what he did wrong. But um, I, I remember reading this and kind of going, if a person can believe this, um, and you, you basically decide, aha, I found the magic key to a life of crime that will succeed, uh, imagine uh, how many more times <laughs> in everybody's day some less flamboyant version of this is happening. Right. So, so that's what we decided to test out. Had, had he had some sort of incident or experience beforehand that made him, I mean, why was it lemon juice and not, you know, tomato juice or uh, a, a bag? Like, where did he come up with this idea on his, on his own? How did he, how did that even enter his mind? You know, it's an interesting question. I have no idea. And, uh, I, I now that you asked the question, I'd love to find out, <laughs> you know, why of all things lemon juice? It's so uh, I, I assume he was looking for it. <laughs> he was looking for some, he was looking for an edge as we all are. <laughs> And uh, he discovered the. Uh, I assume he discovered he he thought this was his edge, mm -hmm. and um, so where it came from, I don't know. That he was looking for something that would uh, suggest he could succeed a bank robbery. There's no doubt, um, uh, but uh, I don't know where the story came from because um, you, in doing this work, you get exposed to a lot of weird stories, mm -hmm. and. Um, and for some of them, you you have no idea where they could come from. You know, they 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 just sound weird, um, uh, but people act on them. So a lot, uh, I love it. I think that's the one of the weirdest things I've ever heard, and it led to this great insight into the human condition. And um, it's also what's great about the Dunning Kruger effect is that you know a lot of um, intellectuals and writers throughout history have sort of. Um, they've they've noticed it out in the world to some degree but then science finally came along and quantified it and i love when that happens it's one of my favorite things in the world um and a lot has been written about the dunning kruger effect here in the last uh especially the last 10 years what what so we can get it, so just so we can have it exactly right what is the true definition of the term okay well i'll give you the short version and then i'll expand upon it a little bit the okay. short version is that uh, incompetent people are not in a position to know they're incompetent uh, in many areas of life. Um, now, uh, there are actually, once you have that in place, there are a lot of other things that fall from that or, or follow from that. So incompetent people are, are uh, less, of a, uh, less good judges about other people and their skill. 
Uh, incompetent people can recognize they're incompetent once you change them into being competent. Um, and it's, uh, incompetent people are going to, it, it's going to be more difficult for them to learn just how um, low their skill level is. And this isn't about denial. This isn't about self-deception. They're just not in a position to know. And the reason they're not in a position to know is um, from something that we refer to as the double curse uh, or the double burden, which is that if you have gaps in your expertise or if you have corruptions in your expertise, you're getting some facts and figures and how they connect wrong, uh, that's going to lead to two different problems for you. The first problem is that you're going to make mistakes, obviously. I mean, if, if you lack expertise, you make mistakes. But um, in a lot of areas in life, um, the um, uh, you rely on those that you rely on that exact same expertise to judge whether or not you've made a mistake. Have you come to a right answer, or have you come to a wrong answer? And so, to the extent that you have gaps in your expertise or corruptions in your knowledge, or you're getting things wrong, uh, you're going to make wrong judgments about how good or how bad your decisions decisions are. And because everybody basically does what they think is the most reasonable thing to do, pretty much everybody's going to be left in a position where they think they're doing okay. They've chosen the best out of all the possible options that are out there. Their strategy is the one that makes the most sense. The problem for some of those people is they're incompetent, <laughs> and they, they don't have the expertise to realize that the strategy they've chosen has a lot of problems with it because they literally lack the expertise to be able to recognize those problems. If they had that expertise, um, at the very least, they'd be asking for advice from other people. So, uh, so incompetent people are in a, um, a special situation where it's not that they don't recognize um, their um, lack of skill. And it's not that they're denying their lack of skill. It's, they're not in a position to, to make the call correctly. Uh, they're not in a position to realize just how badly they're doing. It, it, you just don't, you just don't know the things you don't know. It's like, um, yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, I think about how you really, really, really smart people from our, uh, <clears throat> from the history of science will, will oftentimes come to conclusions simply because there's a giant amount of stuff that they don't know about what they're studying, whether it's like, uh, like canals on Mars and water on Mars and stuff like that. Like they, they're doing a, a, they're doing their best. They're doing hard science and they're checking everything. Not like, unlike, uh, the guy with the lemon juice, they're, uh, they're, they're properly going about trying to study the, the world, but there, there's so much that they're unaware of, um, to the degree that they're not aware of the even lack of knowing it. And, and it can just lead to mm. really strange uh, hypotheses about what, how the world works. No, I think that's right. Um, <clears throat> uh, but, you know, absent uh, knowing the true knowledge, often what you're left with can at least uh, uh, leave you with enough that you can come up with something that seems reasonable, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, for example. So remember that medicine used to be based on uh, applying leeches to people to drain them of blood. There was probably a, 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 some sort of phenomenon, some sort of folklore out there that made that uh, plausible. Uh, even though today we would find that to be incredibly implausible. And um, uh, so uh, one way to think about uh, the problem of the incompetent uh, or people who are choosing incorrectly 
is we all have a lot of knowledge. Or we, let's say we all have a lot of facts, a lot of figures, uh, a lot of metaphors in our head, um, a lot of heuristics we can use uh, in thinking rules of thumb and so forth. And from that, we can cobble together what seems to be a reasonable um, answer to whatever problem we have in front of us. And the issue is, is that might be the most reasonable answer we can come up with, but that doesn't prevent that reasonable answer from being wrong. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the reason we don't see it as wrong is because there's all this other knowledge, if you will, all this, all this other information that we simply are not aware of. So uh, one of the ways um, <clears throat> I describe what's going on, uh, that is there's a borderline between what we know and what we don't know. And I think everybody would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are two other uh, assertions I would make that uh, might be contentious, um, but not if you think about it for a little while. The first is that border happens real quick, and it happens well within the geography of our everyday life. So that often uh, we're acting out of knowledge, but often we're acting out of ignorance and just don't know it. We've crossed that borderline between uh, what we know and what we don't know. And uh, we just, from our lab, we have lots of examples of that where people, you know, go off and they make a decision, they're confident, but they're acting on a totally wrong belief, uh, a lemon juice belief, if you will. Um, I'm going to use that for the rest of my life. Uh, well, yeah, actually, it's a nice phrase, actually, because it does encapsulate it. Uh, but the uh, but here's the thing that I think it potentially is the most contentious, but the thing that our research suggests is the most true, uh, which is of all the irony of the things we don't know, um, the one thing we definitely don't know is where that borderline is between our knowledge and our ignorance. So uh, there might be a true right line between what we know and what we don't know, but you and I don't know where it is. Right. And so we're stepping over it all the time rather confidently and, and stepping back from it. And we don't know when we're doing that. And that, is, that starts to create um, a number of problems, first in judging our own expertise in anything, but also uh, judging the quality of our decisions in everyday life. It's, it's really one of my favorite things when you read about the history of, um, of science is to is when you come across people who were considered the smartest people of their day, or they were considered mm. absolute experts on something like, uh, someone who is considered an, ec- an expert naturalist or what, you know, someone who would be considered a biologist today, but, but at the time they were just someone who was an expert on life forms and they would just be absolutely completely wrong in a way that is, um, you know, the average third grader today would, would recognize, um, whether it's like spontaneous generation or things like that. And, um, I love what I love most about that is that that person was considered to be like, uh, they had achieved the highest level of expertise. That's right. For that time period. Yet they, the vastness of their ignorance was, um, is, is in- incredible. And they could never have known that. And, 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 you know, of course the first thing you think is how applicable is that to our experts today? Do you think that we're, we're getting better at uh, accounting <clears throat> accounting for the ignorance that's probably uh, part of whatever it is that we're studying. Well, uh, 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 the first blush answer I have to give is I don't know uh, because <laughs> because one of the things I do worry is you're right. If you go you know back 300 years and take a look at all the theories that were well received scientific theories 300 years ago, and you roll your eyes at them um, because we're in a privileged position uh, being here in the 21st century. Uh, you, it begins to dawn on you probably 300 years from now 
you know, someone will be, you know, looking at scientific principles or theories, something like the the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, and, go, uh, and rolling their eyes about how wrong uh, those researchers got it uh, back then. So that's a that's a so the idea that our most cherished beliefs, even scientific ones, might be overthrown is is um, uh, just something I accept. You know that could happen, and uh, it's happened in the past. It's going to happen in the future. But uh, one of the things I will say that puts us in a better position now is um, uh, the habits of science, if you will. Um, that is, uh, y- you've uh, mentioned that um, this problem of incompetence or ignorance uh, has been mentioned for a long, long time, and it has, all, you, all the way back to Socrates and Plato. Um, but uh, where you see an outburst of talking about limits of knowledge and discovering limits of knowledge uh, is in the Enlightenment and uh, out of the habits of people out of the Enlightenment, and so one of the habits of science. Uh, doing scientific reasoning. Uh, and so we, if we're in a better position to know when we're wrong and in a, in a better position to discard what turns out to be a childish theories as opposed to more mature and more valid theories, uh, it, I think it's because of the ways of science and in particular one habit that um, is inbred uh, or, or baked into the enterprise. And, and that's the... Uh, habit of skepticism or the habit of disconfirmation. Uh, that is, uh, uh, what I tell students is scientists don't go out and um, try to create evidence for their favorite theories. Some will think that that's what they're doing, but that's not really what the enterprise is all about. Uh, the enterprise is really an enterprise about disconfirmation where you might have a pet theory like the Dunning-Kruger effect or whatever I thought last week, which turned out to be wrong, and you test it in the laboratory or you test it uh, via data. And um, I can't tell you how many dozens or hundreds of my pet ideas have gone to the laboratory and died. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and um, that's valuable knowledge, you know, to, uh, to realize which of your ideas are wrong or ideas are childish or uh, ideas are naive. And if an idea can survive uh, an experiment, it probably is a correct and vibrant theory um, to behold or, or to have. And so I think if we are in an advantage situation uh, now, it's because uh, uh, it, it, we've learned, and especially in the scientific world, we've learned that the, the name of the game is disconfirmation. It's not confirmation. Yeah, it feels like that was the, that is going to, is one of the biggest turning points in all of, uh, you know, the pursuit of knowledge is that seeking disconfirmation first, that's, that's what gets you results. That's what gets you to the moon. And, uh, um, and it's so bizarre that the Dunning Kruger effect is kind of our default setting. We have to unlearn to do that, you know? Um, that's right. That's right. I I'm looking at your, um, one of your papers here. Uh, and I, I read this earlier and I loved it because, um, it, it, this, it, it sort of illustrates that, um, there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot more meat on the bone, and that is uh, one of your uh, studies that you did. It was with um, um, uh, probably Joyce Erlinger. Oh yes, mm-hmm. uh, you had told he told two groups of people two different things, but you gave them the same test. One test you uh, told them that the one group that the test was going to be of uh, computer uh, literacy skills, and he told the other group it was going to be uh, just you know logic and reasoning. And then, but both these two groups took the same test, but they had 
different estimates of how well they had performed on it. Could you sort of elaborate on that? Oh yeah, uh, that uh, uh, that was just a uh, key idea that that uh, uh, Joyce had, which is that um, uh, a lot of what we think about our performances, like uh, you know, have I said anything articulate today in, in your podcast, or um, you know, how well will I do in my uh, course lecture tomorrow, uh, isn't actually based on the experience of the of the podcast or the course lecture. It's it's actually inferred. It's something that I. Um, reason out from abstract ideas I already have about myself. So, uh, so uh, performance estimates like how well did I do today are actually, uh, in psychological jargon, top down. That is, we take preconceived notions we have about ourselves, like um, am I a good lecturer, and then infer whether or not our lecture was good or not based on this preconceived notion of whether we think we're a good lecturer or, or a bad lecturer, a good public speaker or a bad public speaker. And so we uh, tested this idea out by um, giving students a pop quiz on uh, verbal reasoning. Uh, but we gave the test uh, two different labels uh, that we knew students would have a, differ a differing reaction to. Uh, one label was this is, uh, that this was a test of abstract reasoning. And the one thing we knew about our students is they say they have abstract reasoning. That that's a that's a skill they have up the wazoo. Um, in fact, I would I, I would agree with that. In fact, sometimes their thinking is a little bit too abstract, but that's another story. And the other group was told that um, this was a test of the type of reasoning used in computer programming. Uh, and we knew from the students who wander into our experiments that they would deny until the day of their death that they have that skill. So they go, they take the test, it's the same test, same questions, same answers, um, same font, same, all created on the same Xerox machine. So for all intents and purposes, it's the same experience that's being presented. But the students who thought it was an abstract reasoning test um, uh, thought they did much better on it. than uh, They got more questions right. They got 8 out of 10 as opposed to, let's say, 6 out of 10 um, relative to those who thought it was about computer programming. Uh, and in fact... Um, this difference between whether uh, they thought they were good at abstract reasoning versus bad at computer programming was just a strong indicator of how well people thought they had done, as was their actual performance. Uh, so it wasn't that people were divining uh, how well they had done from the actual experience in any way that um, was tightly tied to accuracy. They were inferring how well they had done from what they already thought about themselves. Wow. And l let me just mention two follow-ups to that work. Okay. Uh, the one follow-up, uh, which uh, uh, is now turning out to be important uh, that we did it, was we brought uh, students into our laboratory and gave them a pop quiz on science. And one of the things we monitored was, well, uh, what was the gender of the person walking in? Were they, uh, were they male or were they female? Because one of the things we know is starting the late teens, uh, teen, uh, uh, teenage boys and teenage girls start to differ in how scientifically talented they think they are. And so we knew that, and we, t we confirmed that uh, uh, male students walking into our laboratory thought they had more scientific talent than the female students thought they did. They're all taking the same test. By the way, they all do exactly the, they they all do uh, equally well, men and women, uh, in uh, on this test. But uh, when you ask them afterward how well they think they've done, uh, the men think they've done much better than the women think they've done. 
Um, that is that uh, you can have this split in preconceived notion about yourself um, that begins to play out in terms of uh, the impressions people are um, uh, are creating about uh, whether they're good at scientific tasks or bad at scientific tasks. And uh, in a uh, basically, in modern times, we know that men are overrepresented in engineering and science. Uh, this could be one of the mechanisms that's producing it. Not differences in actual talent, but differences in perceived talent, uh, which cause people to um, evaluate themselves differently on a day-to-day -day basis. And, I'll, and one last follow-up, um, uh, because <clears throat> this is also uh, this this is where the work. Uh, uh, begins to impress me. Not that I've done it, but the results coming in begin to be, give pause. Which is that um, you can ask the question, uh, why are these preconceived notions of self having an impact on how well people think they're doing? Uh, wouldn't it be swamped by the, just the actual experience of the test? That is, are you having a conflict between which answer you should choose? Is it taking you a long time to come to an answer? Do the terms look familiar? Do they look alien? You would think this bottom-up experience. Right, right. The look and feel of the test would just swamp the individual difference. Um, uh, with Clayton Critcher, we did a follow-up to the original work, and we discovered that a lot of people's actual bottom-up experience is formed by their top-down preconceptions. So that if you're skilled, you think you're answering the questions more quickly, you think the terms look more familiar, you experience less conflict uh, between the various answers that you can give, even though we can find no evidence of this in reality. But the, the look and feel of the test literally changes based, uh, based on what you think about your ability walking into the room. Wow. See, that that's... So the inference on the back end is changing the way you perceive the reality of what you just experienced. And I also, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can um, prime people going into the test by saying women typically, this is a test of scientific knowledge and women typically don't do very well on those tests. And then that can actually affect the process of taking the test going in, or you can change it to whatever, like uh, cultural or ethnicity uh, uh, variables that you can mess with by priming people going in can also affect how they uh, perform on the test as well. Is that true? Uh, that's right. So uh, when we were uh, in our work, what we find is we find um, what we're doing doesn't affect actual performance, but it does affect what people perceive of their performance. Right. But there is a, a, a lot of work uh, on the topic of stereotype vulnerability or stereotype threat in, uh, in social psychology showing that ultimately you get differences in actual performance. Okay. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, so, okay, with, with Dunning-Kruger and with this um, this inference thing that comes from the, um, I think as you call it, the chron a chronic self of you, of yourself. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, um, exactly. So, um, so with this inference thing where you uh, actually experience less um, conflict and you feel like you're doing gr a great job while you're taking the test or not, depending on what you're uh, uh, viewing, how you view yourself and how you view the material, how does it... Um, if you, if you as a, as an expert, as a scientist could choose between like a head of state, like a president or, or maybe like a military commander or something or someone who in a position of great power and authority, which, which would you prefer to have someone who is, who is confident in a way that maybe they, uh, don't deserve or someone who is very, very accurate at assessing how well they're doing at a certain task and how good their decisions were on the back end. 
Oh, the only answer I can give is I want them both, but at different times. Okay. Uh, that is, <clears throat> um, uh, there are uh, there are some times when confidence is very, very important. That is, for example, if you're a general and you're about to lead your troops into battle, uh, you definitely want to be confident because you want your troops to execute their tasks and not have any doubts and not to delay because that's going to save lives. But you don't. So you want it. You want a confident uh, general at that moment. But before that moment, you want a general who's who's incredibly cautious. You know, who wants as many troops as possible, as much ordnance as possible, uh, who has a plan B and plan C if plan A doesn't work out. Uh, that is, you want someone who's uh, who's filled with doubts and using those doubts to try to um, uh, figure out all the contingencies that are out there that can happen on the day that uh, the battle begins. So you you want that overly cautious general in preparation, but the day of battle, when it's time to execute, you want a confident general. Mm-hmm. So, um, so uh, one way to think about confidence is that it, it has its bad sides and it has its good sides. So it ultimately turns out to be something that you need to manage. You need to know when you should have it and when you should not have it. And uh, there is no blanket answer um, that and, and how you manage confidence is not about should I always be confident or should I always be cautious. Mm-hmm. You really have to turn on the caution and turn it off and turn on the confidence in those moments when it's going to be the most helpful for you or whoever you're leading or whoever you're responsible for. Wow. And so and that that's another meta skill that you have to uh, <laughs> to practice and hone. That's right. Yeah, yes. Uh, there, unfortunately, in life, there are a lot of meta skills. There, there are many, many of them. So it's not a surprise that some of them we were not very good at. Right. So if you uh, in a, like a, in an institution that wants to be better at making decisions and wants to be better at having people who are actually good at what they do and don't just think they're good at what they do, are there some suggestions from psychology about how to build better institutions? Uh, there, uh, there are some helpful um, uh, points that psychology suggests in order to avoid um, overconfidence that leads you over, over the cliff, if you will. The first is that although it's unpleasant, uh, you do want to have uh, naysaying voices involved in any sort of decision that you make. That is, you want someone to play a devil's advocate. Um, uh, to Basically to poke holes in what the, the group or the institution might be thinking about uh, what it wants to do. Uh, the reason for that is having a devil's advocate can spot, uh, it help uh, the organization spot when it's being overconfident, or sometimes just improve the decision that uh, the institution's going to do. So you want that. Uh, the, the second thing you want to do is you want to build in um, buffers for wrong decisions, and more importantly, wrong decisions that you can't anticipate. You know that some of your decisions are going to be wrong. You know that there are going to be complications. You just don't know when they're going to happen. So in the software world, uh, software development, uh, it's quite common to go to uh, software developers and ask, how long will it take you to um, uh, design and uh, execute this uh, new software that we're we're building? And the... uh, uh, the developer will give you an estimate, and you go, thank you very much, and then you immediately inflate it by 30%. Because you know that the uh, software developer is going to be overconfident, hasn't anticipated everything. So you just know that from uh, past experience, you inflated 30%, and you inflated up to 100% if it's a new operating system, for example. And um, architects know this, so they'll, um, 
when they're building a building, they'll calculate how much concrete uh, they need in order to make sure the building will be stable. And then they just multiply that, that number by as much as eight right. uh, to make sure. So you just build in those sorts of buffers. Yeah. Um, now, both these, you know, having a devil's advocate is unpleasant. Building, adding more concrete is more expensive. But uh, what it does do is it does uh, insulate you against um, unknown incompetence. And you just know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to show up sooner or later. You just don't know where. So you might as well just have these policies that help you um, address uh, uh, the problems that you can't anticipate when they finally, uh, uh, finally rear up and uh, uh, try to bite you. That is fantastic. Um, and it's also, I love whenever people acknowledge our shortcomings and account for them, whether it's with checklists, even with surgeons oh, yeah. or, or things exactly. like that. Or in this case, like uh, taking something like Dunning-Kruger and saying, look, this is probably happening. It's all over the place. Let's, let's account for it. Um, and I, I was reading that some of your more recent research is in the realm of um, we're not, we're bad looking one direction, but we're also bad looking the other and that we are uh, – both mm. both bad at recognizing genius genius or something like genius if you want to use a different word and yes. um and geniuses themselves are kind of bad at knowing that they're the, that they are is that true <laughs> well no that's that's actually part of the original dunning kruger um framework was that uh geniuses often don't know how special they are uh because for them uh tasks come easy uh the right answer comes easy and so they just assume if it's easy for me it's easy for everybody and, uh, that, and that's, a, that's very much a, a living phenomenon I see every day with very bright students or anybody who has more expertise in something than I have. Uh, they just assume I'm understanding everything they're saying and I have no clue what they're talking about. So if a plumber comes to our house, on occasion I will, I will carry a tape recorder <laughs> So that <laughs> I, they're, they're going to speak too fast. I'm not going to be able to follow, uh, but I'll be able to replay and then look up into Google what I think the words oh, are. That's great advice. That's that's some good life hacking right there. Good job. Well, yeah, but uh, you know, I have to. Uh, but you have to. I have to do it because I now recognize that person um, thinks that I understand. And uh, there's uh, other than crying, I, I don't seem to have anything in my arsenal to make a person <laughs> understand that I don't understand. Uh, that, uh, that was part of the original package, part of the family of effects that fall out of uh, uh, incompetent people not knowing they're incompetent. But our current work, uh, what we're doing is asking, well, what happens at the collective level? That is, if you act, ask about a group or a business or society, sort of what extensions are, are, are there of this uh, Dunning-Kruger framework? And the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, the collective you know, is competent, but it's not perfectly competent, which means often it's not in a position to recognize true genius when it shows up. So um, one of my favorite examples of this uh, is the film Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock, oh, yeah, yeah. which just um, just was voted the number one film of all time by Sight and Sound, the British uh, critics. Uh, Film Critics Society, and that, that's sort of the most honored list, as far as I know, that's the most honored list. Um, you know, it uh, it was a bomb, or it made it, it's, it made it, it made its money back, but it was passed over for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Picture, um, and uh, it got really mixed reviews when it came out. So it literally took fifty years for the genius um, uh, that was contained in Vertigo to be recognized. 
And uh, the same is true for a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. Go back and look at the original reviews of the Gettysburg Address, for example. You'll find a lot of people who kind of go, wow, that was short and uninspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, Moby Dick. Uh, I, I remember <laughs> reading how Moby, people thought Moby Dick was terrible, uh, unreadable. Well, there was also um, a lot of Walt Whitman stuff. People were like, oh, this guy's terrible. Why do people read this? So, yeah, that, it comes up a lot. It, it, it does come up a lot. And so what we did is uh, we... Uh, currently engaged in a number of studies where uh, we expose people to others who are performing very poorly to performing extremely well like in logical reasoning or in, in the financial literacy that they're displaying uh, toward others, uh, or they're displaying. And what we find is that uh, the collective is pretty good at knowing who's bad. I mean, the collective is pretty good at judging who the poor performers are. But uh, top performers just really get underrated. Um, they, they just get missed. And so uh, our pithy way of saying it is that genius often just hides in plain sight because people just don't have the, the intellectual scaffolding to be able to recognize it. And so that, uh, it, whether that genius is embodied in a person or in an idea, um, uh, uh, people or the collective often just doesn't have the genius itself to be able to recognize wow. uh, what it has, and, and and so that that that's what we're working on right now in a number of different ways. That's awesome, and and, it's, and of course, you know, here's the problem: you've just handed another uh, out for someone who's like, well, maybe I'm just a genius, and uh, no one can recognize it. So. Well, no, I think that's exactly right. Or as one of my colleagues once said, you've explained the experience of every working class kid who's really <laughs> smart in their high school. But the problem is, is you, you're right. I mean, uh, th- this uh, explains the uh, true experiences of uh, re- some really smart people but it also explains uh, or purports to explain the experiences of people who think they're smart, but they're not really smart. And that's wow. a much larger number. It just it just all around illustrates how, uh, oddly enough, we are not very good at assessing our own selves. I mean, uh, before we go, I, I wanted to get this question in before we go. And that is, sure. um, it seems like, okay, obviously we're very bad in every in both directions when it comes to uh, uh, assessing ourselves. Um and then accurately figuring out how skilled or not skilled, how knowledgeable, how not knowledgeable. It seems like that would be an important and an adaptive skill to possess. Mm. Um, it seems like it would be bad for us, evolutionarily speaking. Uh, is it just a glitch or a bug in the system? Or what is your take on on that perspective? Well, my take is that um, I have a couple of different takes. The first is that evolution is designed to make us good enough to survive, but it's not going to make us all geniuses, uh, for example. Um, so we're, we're going to be competent enough to be able to ingest enough calories until we reach the age where potentially we can procreate. It'll make, get us to that level. But it, it won't make us all Einsteins, uh, for example, or Alfred Hitchcocks, or what, whatever genius that, that you want to think about. So it'll get us up to a, a certain level. But, I, uh, but the second uh, point is just noting how difficult this task is. That uh, if you sit down and say, "Why don't people know themselves?" You begin to realize that there are just some in there are some really big barriers uh, to knowing yourself, and uh, those barriers are so big um, that uh, evolution is, is not tough enough uh, to be able to defeat them. And and so that's uh, so that's what I think. One, uh, however, let me leave with this note, which is that um, uh, when we're talking about it's it, difficult 
to know yourself, that's if you make it a private uh, task that only you are engaged in. You don't talk to other people. If you talk to other people, they can be sources of invaluable uh, insight into yourself. Uh, some of it may be unpleasant. Um, but uh, also just watching what other people do and benchmarking what you do versus what they do can be a source of insight. Uh, so that's something to, uh, to consider, that it takes a village, if you will, to, for a person to know themselves. Um, uh, oh, sure, there's one other thing I was going to mention here. Let me see if I can quickly... Uh, uh, oh, oh, yes, the other thing is that um, uh, uh, people sometimes ask me, okay, how do you figure out if you are gaining in knowing yourself? And one of the uh, hints I give, I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it sounds right, is uh, to ask people, are you vaguely embarrassed by things you did five or ten years ago? <laughs> and if you are, uh, that means good, you're evolving, you're improving. I mean, if you think about the self you were ten years ago and you're not embarrassed by, by something that you did, um, you might be off the task of, of right. really figuring out the type of person you are or the type of person you might be. So I'm, I'm always happy uh, in a second-order way when I read one of my old papers and kind of go, wow, uh, boy, did I do that wrong. Um, right. That's great advice. Like you should all – if you're a creative person or you're, you, you output uh, work like you do uh, – I would hope that you could always look back on the stuff that you've made and be like, yeah, because like, uh, especially if you're a writer, if you don't look back at this, at your old stuff, if you look back at your old stuff and say, wow, I used to be really great. I mean, then there's a, you were definitely moving in the wrong direction. No, and I think that's absolutely right. So, but, but by the way, sometimes it happens in reverse, which is you'll look at an old piece and kind of go, oh, now I get it. Now I get why, why people were paying attention to that. Um, I didn't get it then, but now I get it. Now I see. Um, uh, you know, to the extent that you can sort of look at your past self and see a different person. It suggests that you yourself now are a different person and hopefully one that that's more uh, insightful. And I think here's something that I think people would like to know. This would, this would be my, la my last question. I'll say my best for last. And that is, sure. um, how does David Dunning live his life differently knowing what he knows about the Dunning-Kruger effect? Uh, I'm much more likely just to accept what I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, that is if, uh, I think a is going to happen and then the opposite of a happens, I sort of look at that and say, okay, I'm, I'm shifting course. I was wrong. I, uh, I don't, uh, rebel against experience and I, I don't rebel against data, uh, the way I might, uh, when I was younger. Um, I'm a little bit more laid back about making mistakes. Now, mind you beforehand, I don't want to make mistakes. It's terrible to make mistakes sometimes. And then some doozies have been made. Um, but um, uh, afterward, I, I don't beat myself up as much. Uh, I just accept uh, that a mistake has been made and try to learn and try to figure out what I should learn from it. Okay. So look, um, people are going to want to find you. They will they'll want to keep up with you and see what you're doing in the future. How can they do that? Uh, a couple different things. Um, my... Um, uh, if you Google uh, uh, David Dunning and the term SASI, S-A-S-I, that'll get you to my lab's website so you can see whatever is going on there. Um, and um, 
uh, I also have a, uh, a list there if there's something like this, where I've, I've made a contact with the media, there's been some interview or some article or something like that. Uh, I list it there, and, and often people can sort of, uh, from the website, work their way into material that they might find interesting. So that's the place uh, where I'd start. Right. Well, look, thank you so much. I love your work. Uh, you've been you know, very important to all the things that I've been into in the last few years, and I just really appreciate what you do, and I thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. You know, I look around and I, I see that we're living in the future that I imagine we would live in as a child all over the place, whether it's our you know smartphones or whether it's how we can get everything on demand. And even this podcast, this is something that you can listen to whenever you want and whenever that's convenient for you. So when it comes to using the post office, why would you actually go to that building and deal with their limited hours and the lines and waiting when you can just get your postage on demand right now with stamps.com? I mean, anything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with stamps.com. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, stamps.com never closes. So you can get postage whenever you need it 24-7. I've been using stamps.com for several years now. I love they have this um, this fun, cool, futuristic silver scale that you use that you hook up to your computer. And uh, I use it all the time because we started sending out lots and lots of mail um, once the podcast started. I already had to do a lot of um, other things involved with uh, sending out books and everything. But when it came to the podcast, we started sending out a book every single podcast. And sometimes they go uh, all over the world. And stamps.com was a great solution for not having to go over to the post office, weigh it, get a package, talk to someone, hand it to that person, especially if you have to send it somewhere uh, unique, the you have to talk to a human being. And stamps.com got rid of all of that. I do everything from home now, and I love it. I mean, a lot of people in my situation, people who have small businesses um, and they work out of their home most of the time, they might consider getting like a meter, uh, like, a, like a device that you go rent from the post office, which is incredibly expensive and unwieldy and someone came up with something better. I mean, you already use apps and services to automate so many other things in your life so that you can live in the future. Stamps.com seems like the, it, it, it seems very weird that this would be the one thing you, you left to the old ways that you would still go to that building and deal with people and lines and uh, all these archaic things when you could do it from home, from your computer. And I mean from home because you can even arrange to have your letter carrier come pick up your packages in your mail when they deliver the mail you have coming to you. And you can ship things off straight from your house using stamps.com. So here comes the special offer. This is great. Right now, you can use my promo code SMART for this offer a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and $55 in free postage. Oh boy, that's by doing this, okay? You go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, you click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and then you type in SMART, S-M-A-R-T, SMART. That's stamps.com, and enter the code SMART. 
When you're looking for something on the internet that could help you understand how to use a piece of software or a program or something else that you know that you need to understand in a way that's deeper than is offered by a YouTube video or by some blog or some forum, where do you go? I think you should go to lynda.com. lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com. It's an easy and affordable way to help individuals and organizations learn and instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts on software, web development, graphic design, and more. And for a limited time, you can get seven days of this for free. Just go to lynda.com slash smart. You can just go there right now and enjoy this smorgish bog of wonderful knowledge. You can pick apart a buffet of things that will make your brain big and fat, and you can do that to your heart's desire for seven full days. Imagine all the stuff that you can stuff into your cranium in seven days with lynda.com. Just go to lynda.com slash smart to play around with it. And what you'll find there is fresh content, new courses added every day. They work with industry experts and software companies to provide timely training, often the same day that new versions or releases hit the market. So you're always up to speed. All the courses are produced at the highest quality, not like the videos you will find around the internet, not like stuff on YouTube. And the courses are broken into bite-sized pieces so you can learn at your own pace and learn from start to finish or just find a quick answer. The tools include searchable transcripts, playlists, certificates of course completion, which you can publish to your LinkedIn profile. You know That's great if you're like a professional and you would like another actual certificate to show that you are up to date, you are up to speed with the latest information. And the courses are offered from beginner to advanced. So that's all experience levels. Whether you are uh, just getting started, you've been around for a while, lynda.com has courses for all levels. And you can learn on the go. They have apps, so you can get something for iPhone, iPad, or Android. And the sky is the limit because one low monthly price of $25 gives you access unlimited to 100,000 plus video tutorials. Now, premium members they can download the course materials to their iPhone, iPad, or other device, and they can watch them offline. And these premium plan members, they can download project files and practice along with the instructor. So here's what you want to do. If, you, if you're a developer, if you're into software, 3D animation, audio and music, design, photography, and all sorts of other stuff, you can go to lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com, and start learning right now. Now I've been looking at all sorts of stuff, listening to things, watching things, uh, audio production, user interfaces, and I'm interested in getting a DSLR. And so I'm starting to watch some stuff at lynda.com to teach me how to use all the buttons and then also to make really great photographs with those cameras. It's all there and you can play around with it right now, seven days for free. Go to lynda.com. That's lynda.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, uh, who cares about other things? C is for Cookie. That's On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart C podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study right after eating a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy 
of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And this week's recipe is Sunshine Cookies sent in by Janelle Robichaud. Oh, please tell me that's how you say your last name, Janelle Robichaud. Oh boy, you sent me a recipe for um, cookies that are very lumpy, very lumpy, very um, sort of misshapen. Uh, no doubt it's a cookie, flat on the bottom, lumpy everywhere else. And uh, Janelle writes that she is very happy to have discovered the podcast, that she uh, loves seeing a new episode waiting for her in the queue. And uh, she enjoys the topics and she loves that um, I love cookies. And I love that you love that I love cookies because... Oh my God, all these recipes, I have so many coming up, coming up in the future that I think you're going to like. When she says that she made the, uh, the cinnamon cardamom snickerdoodles and fell in love with them, yes, believe me, uh, we have too. We have made those cookies so many times, they're insane. And she sent in a recipe that is really, really good too. And what you have here are um, cookies made with butter, peanut butter, brown sugar, eggs, vanilla, baking powder, and then also quick oats. Sunflower seeds, chocolate chips, flax seeds, pumpkin seeds, and uh, so that's why it's so lumpy. And then you bake it all up, and they're great. And uh, boy, this is this is also, by the way, from Canada. This is a Canadian cookie, everyone. And I'm going to tell you, I'm ready. I'm ready to enjoy uh, what our wonderful uh, neighbors to the north have created. Here we go. Oh, sunshine time. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like you. Well, mm, that is chewy. That is a that's business right there. Your mouth is going to enjoy. Your mouth has something to do. This isn't just you know turn into mush. There's things in there. Mm. So first of all, it tastes good, and but it also tastes like it's um, nutritious. Even though I know that there is a battle between the nutritious stuff and the not nutritious stuff happening right now in my mouth. Um, so my immediate response, uh, reaction is, uh, my, my immediate thought is this tastes like, uh, okay. If I was, um, doing some like, um, mountain biking and I'm going down one of those trails and I'm like woo, 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 going down the trail and I'm doing all the turns and the hops. And then suddenly I, uh, the front wheel pops off and I fly down the, the hill and I'm, uh, I, I hit, I land face first and my mouth fills up with a bunch of stuff off the forest floor, uh, as I skid to a halt. And then I stand up and I go, Hey, the forest is made of candy. Um, candy, everyone, the floors of candy. Yeah. That's what it tastes like. It tastes like, uh, I have a mouth full of, uh, twigs and leaves and rocks that are edible, chewable, and delicious. That is a really cool cookie. Thank you so much. Janelle, uh, Robichaud, I'm sorry, Robichaud, Robichaud, oh man, please, I, here, let me put this in my mouth and stop talking. Um, healthy, not healthy, combined, hmm, so good, yeah, so let's talk about some self-delusion now, hmm, mouthful of siege, mouthful of siege, chewy and good, hmm. This episode research came to me from uh, an article in nymag.com 
uh, written by Melissa Dahl on October 17th, 2014. You can find that online at nymag.com. And the title of the, uh, the, uh, the headline of the story is Scientific Evidence That Self-Promoters Underestimate How Annoying They Are. And Melissa writes that, um, here's the thing, people who self-promote a lot don't realize that they're doing it at a level that other people find, uh, well, just, you know, annoying, cringy, weird. And what Melissa writes about in this, uh, in this article is a study that came out, uh, or that's coming out, hasn't, hasn't been published yet, by Irene Scopatelli and other researchers at City University London. And what they've discovered is that um, people who brag a lot underestimate how uh, annoying that is to other people. And um, they, what they did is they asked people to recall when they had bragged most recently or recall the last time they listened to someone bragging and then to rate whether or not uh, uh, they believed if they were doing the bragging that the other person enjoyed it or was in any way, you know, unhappy with it. And then they also asked the last time they heard someone brag, how did you uh, respond to that? And what they found was that there's just sort of a mismatch here that people who brag greatly overestimate how other people are feeling. Uh, they overestimate the positive emotions that they're generating. Whereas the people who are receiving the uh, bragging, uh, they report that they really don't like it very much. So uh, it, there's an imbalance here between what you think people think and what they actually think. And uh, what's <laughs> the research goes on to say that, um, the article goes on to say that the researchers asked, uh, in another part of the study, they asked people to, create uh, fake social media uh, profiles and they uh, some of the people were asked to specifically make them in such a way that they would make other people like them and then to estimate how much uh, people liked the profiles they put together and of course overall people greatly overestimated how much people liked the profile they made and on top of that um, people who were judging these profiles they tended to like the profiles least of the people who had tried to make them like them the most. <laughs> uh, I love it. Melissa goes into other detail in her article saying that, um, th- that there's lots of research into this sort of thing when it comes to, you know, how we assess how we're doing in a conversation. And, um, you know, people, she writes, want other people to like them. And so in, in a, some, for some reason, we attempt to make other people like us by listing our accomplishments and uh, sort of, you know, demonstrating our um, our social status or, or, you know, weird things like that. And um, it seems, at least the research shows, that this almost always uh, does the opposite of what we intend. And it makes people think we're um, weird and braggy and, uh, and uh, maybe conceited or narcissistic. Melissa also writes that uh, a, a really strange paradox uh, or, you know, a backfire type effect comes up that uh, when people self-promote too much, other people tend to rate them as probably being less competent because they think they're, you know, they're having to puff themselves up and tell their stories to such a degree that, uh, that maybe they're actually covering up for their inadequacies. So, uh, my advice is, uh, don't, (laughs) don't do that. Uh, when you're in a conversation, ask the other person about themselves, ask questions as much as you can and get to know and learn about the other person. And, uh, you know, and don't, you know, try to become some strange sociopathic, um, you know, uh, person hacker who's trying to make other people like you with, with, uh, specially targeted anecdotes. Just, 
just, you know, wade into the experience of being a human and try to understand other people's perspectives and ask questions. And they will then ask questions of you. And if there's anything pertinent to the conversation that, uh, that otherwise would have been considered a braggy comment, that's when it will come out. So, uh, more scientific evidence for, uh, don't go around, uh, telling people how awesome you are. It's only going to make people think that you are not that awesome. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one and head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast. You can also find links to everything I talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com and you can learn more about both of my books over at that website. Send your cookie recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com and if I bake and eat your cookie, I will send you a signed copy of one of those books. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog, and I am at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and the music beds are by Drew Garraway. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.